Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. I've been talking about LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, history.com. You've heard about it several times in the introduction of this podcast. So get on out to LearnTrueHistory.com to get history the way it was intended to be told with no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. But not only that, I've got my new How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, my forthcoming book. So I want you to go to LearnTrueHistory.com to sign up for that great program. But also, if you go to BlameHamilton.com, you can get in on some giveaways for my forthcoming book. So two websites for you, LearnTrueHistory.com and BlameHamilton.com. Get in on both of those things. LearnTrueHistory.com is the place to go to learn history the way it was intended to be told. BlameHamilton.com is where you learn about how Alexander Hamilton was the greatest villain in American history. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Episode 105. Glad to have you back in the program. Glad to be here. As usual, before we get started today, just want to remind you of a few things. If you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. And you can find me on social media. You can like me on Facebook. If you go to or just search for Brian McClanahan on Facebook, you can follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. And you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Also, just look for Brian McClanahan. If you go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, you can find the links to all of those social media outlets. Also, you can give me an email address and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook read by yours truly, Forgotten Founders, as well. And if you go to brianmcclanahan forward slash support, you can also throw a few pennies my way to help keep the Brian McClanahan show up and going, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcasts running. Also, I just want to remind you that there's less than a month left in my Hamilton giveaways. If you go to BlameHamilton.com, you can uh, find out all the details there. But if you pre-order one book, you will get a, an ebook, The Jeffersonian Solution. If you pre-order two or more, you not only get the ebook, but you also get a six-lecture course on Alexander Hamilton. All of that just for pre-ordering a couple of books. And just want to remind you that that deal goes away on the 18th. I just received yesterday, hot off the press, some advanced copies of it. It looks great. You're going to love it. So go on out there and get that and uh, uh, do it while you can because, again, the 18th, all of those uh, giveaways go away. Uh, also, uh, one of the listeners wanted me to uh, suggest that if you, don't, you can't get enough of the Brian McClanahan Show, uh, I actually have another podcast uh, that I do once a week. Um, so you could get three days a week of me. Uh, that particular podcast is through the Abbeville Institute website. And it's, it's their week in review at the Abbeville Institute. Now that podcast is a little different from this particular show because that's all things Southern. So essentially what I do for that podcast is go through the material that, that was published at the Abbeville Institute for the week. So if you want to get my spin on all things Southern... You can go there, and if you want to find more information about that particular organization or that podcast, just go to abbevilleinstitute.org, also as well as with you know, the Brian McClanahan Show. Uh, if you go to abbevilleinstitute.org and you give them an email address, they will give you a free ebook as well, Kirkpatrick Sales Emancipation Hell, and you can find out more information about that great organization uh, at abbevilleinstitute.org. And also to remind you that if you do like this podcast, Please go out to iTunes and leave a review. 
that's a great way to let people know about the podcast and help boost uh, the the uh, maybe the listener base for that. So uh, all of those things, I would be greatly appreciated if you do that. And um, uh, it does uh, it it does uh, make me happy to see that uh, people do listen to the show and share it around, and uh, it helps uh, keep my momentum going and help keep my interest going in doing this. So. Um, I'm glad that you like it. I do get uh, mail. And I just want to say, you know, if you do send me mail if, with suggestions and those type of things, and I, I read everything, I don't always have time to respond, but I do read them. And uh, even the notes of, you know, hey, I love your show. Uh, that's great. Uh, I, I do appreciate all of that. If I can't get back to you individually, I'm making a blanket announcement here. I do appreciate your support. Now, that said, about uh, sending me suggestions for a podcast. Uh, I do uh, get those, and I do actually read them, and today is going to be a user or a listener-generated episode. It's, uh, I, had, I received an email uh, from a listener and saying, look, I don't really understand American political parties. Uh, I don't understand you know, why we have the two-party system. Has it always been that way? Have we always had two parties? Why is it in America that it seems like we only have Democrats and Republicans? Of course, if you look around the world, uh, you have many other countries that have uh, a different type of, of political system. And when I was an undergraduate, uh, I, I minored in political science. When I went to graduate school, uh, I worked uh, with a, for a time, I was going to have a minor field for my, uh, for my doctoral studies in political philosophy, though I switched at the last minute. Um, but uh, that's something that's always interested me as well. I did take courses in, in political philosophy. I just didn't do a, a minor field in that. Um, but I, it is something that's interested me. And, you know, why is, our, why is our political process the way it is in the United States? And I think at times, particularly if you're a person that is, say, a libertarian or you're someone that's interested in, in something outside of the, as Tom Woods calls it, the three-by-five index card of allowable opinion, having the two-party system is a detriment. We look at it and we think, gosh, I wish there was a way we could make an inroad somewhere and actually have impact uh, as a group of, of people interested in politics outside of the Republicans and Democrats because Lord knows that they're the same party, essentially. They're both nationalist parties. They are both essentially moderate parties interested in the expansion of government power for one in one way or another. I mean, at the, at the quote-unquote national level, both parties are interested in the expansion of federal power. There's no doubt about it. Uh, so how do you stop that? How, I mean, how do we make a dent in that, in that system? So when you look at American history and uh, you look at how things have developed over time, first and foremost, it's important to understand why we have this situation, why we have essentially a, a two-party system from the top down. Even at the state level, we essentially have a two-party system. In some states, it's basically a one-party system because uh, of the unity of the, uh, of the voting electorate in those states. Uh, you, you don't really have a large minority uh, vote. And I'm not talking about a racial or ethnic or any type of minority, but a minority party. There's not really much there. If you look at some states... Uh, you have dominance of one party, particularly in, in where I live in the South. It's almost always been that way. Uh, you've, you've almost always had a situation where one party has been fairly dominant in the state. 
so when you look at the American system, what we have is something called a single member district plurality voting, uh, particularly at the when you look at congressional elections uh, for the House of Representatives. We do have a majoritarian system for the president. Uh, the president has to get a majority in the Electoral College. And if the president doesn't get a majority in the Electoral College, then the vote is thrown to the House of Representatives, where the president has to get, the, the candidate has to get, a majority of the states to vote for them in the House. And the vote is by state there. It's not by member. And it's not you just have to get you know a majority of the 435 members. No, you have to get a majority of the states to vote for you in the House of Representatives. So uh, we've, we've seen that happen uh, a couple of times in American history. Um, it happened for, with Thomas Jefferson. It happened with, with John Quincy Adams. Uh, so the, the election was thrown to the House of Representatives in those particular 1800 and 1824. But uh, outside of that, so for Congress, for, for the House of Representatives, we do have a single-member district plurality system. And essentially we have that for the Senate now as well. So all that has to happen is somebody has to get a plurality of the votes in that district, or if you're looking at the Senate, in that uh, state to be elected. So you could have someone get 35% of the vote in those states as long as that was the majority of the votes in that they, they or a plurality, I should say. You know, if they had the most votes of everyone, if there was four candidates, it's a winner-take-all system. Now, in primaries, we don't have that. You know, we just had a primary in Alabama. Uh, there's going to be a runoff. You have to get 50% of the vote in your, in your primary. Uh, this is the seat that Jeff Sessions vacated when he became attorney general. So uh, you have to have a majority in, in a primary runoff to become the candidate. But then once you go to the general election, again, it's a plurality system. You just have to get a plurality of the votes, and it's winner-take-all. So that has facilitated a situation where you get larger and larger parties and you develop, uh, you know, essentially two factions. Theoretically, each one of these factions has different motives. Of course, at the, as I've already mentioned, at the national level, you don't really see that a whole lot. You see both factions interested in the spoils of power and they're scrambling for the, for the goodies, so to speak, to, to gain and maintain that power. And this is why the two parties have developed. Now, if you look back at American history, one of the questions was, well, why have we always had two parties? If you go back to the earliest situations in American political history and you start looking at, uh, particularly after the Constitution was, was written and ratified, and you start looking at what these factions wanted, you did have essentially two factions developed at that time. One of the factions uh, was, uh, for a time, it was just called pro-administration. Uh, this is during the Washington administration, so it was pro-administration. You didn't have, uh, you know, you didn't have the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans, uh, you know, really uh, crystallized yet. There were there were groups of people that were suspicious of the new general government under the Constitution. They thought it had too much power. And so generally they were called anti-federalists, which I think is an incorrect term. They were real federalists. They wanted a real federal republic where the states had a tremendous amount of authority. And then you had the pro-administration people, or later the federalists, 
who were interested in, uh, and again, they were really nationalists, they were interested in a much more powerful central authority, a national government, uh, basically a unitary system. And so when you look at that, there's another term that is often used, a unitary system. A unitary system is like France. Everything is top-down. The, the provinces in France or the parishes or you know, they're, they're, they're counties, essentially, don't have very much power. Uh, the cities have virtually no power. Everything comes from the top down. So the government in Paris, or essentially at, at Versailles uh, for a time, but the, the government there and the central authority in France uh, makes all of the decisions for everything, for the cities, for the provinces, uh, you know, for, for all the local communities. Everything comes from the top down. It's a unitary system. Our political system is a federative system or a confederal system. This is when people start you know, bashing confederacies. That's essentially what the United States government was intended to be, uh, even under the Constitution, because it was creating a more perfect union. But a more perfect union of what? It was a union of states, a federal or confederal system, where the central authority had certain delegated powers. As I've talked about on this podcast, I grant you the power. Uh, this is one of, the sh one of the episodes, granted by the states to the central authority, and those powers are codified in the Constitution and enumerated in the Constitution in Article 1, Section 8. Uh, also, uh, you could say maybe Article 1, Section 7. Uh, there are certain sections where you get powers granted to the general government, uh, Article 2, Article 3. So those powers are granted, and all other powers are reserved, to the states. This is how the Constitution was sold to the states, uh, and this is what we were supposed to get. So those those powers then, those reserved powers, uh, there, were, there were groups that thought, well, they were you had implied powers. There were groups that thought you didn't really have implied powers, and those would coalesce around factions. And eventually, those factions would also include things like foreign policy. You had one faction that was much more pro-French and one faction that was much more pro-British. In fact, you could make a case that the political parties that we that came to be known as the Federalist and Democratic Republicans really didn't codify or you know coalesce, crystallize, uh, and until uh, around the time that Jay's Treaty was uh, written and ratified in 1794, and that's because uh, you know John Jay brings back this treaty, and it's very pro-British, and you did have a faction in uh, the government that was pro-British. Uh, and so they generally believed in a much more stronger, uh, much more, a much stronger general government or national government, quote unquote. And then the other side uh, were were very much against it. So, but we still didn't have parties like we have today. These were factions. And when George Washington left office in 1797, and of course the very famous farewell address, which was published uh, in 1796. Uh, written primarily by Alexander Hamilton, and then, uh, but Washington agreed with it, and, and he read it, of course, and, and agreed with it. Uh, he warned against factions because he thought these factions were dangerous for the stability of the United States. Because once you start getting to factions, all else goes by the wayside, meaning that people are going to start looking at your faction and not your policies or your principles. Uh, Washington and many of the men of the founding generation were what you would call disinterested statesmen. Uh, they just were in, in their own mind. I mean, George Washington in particular was a man who believed that his duty 
was to the Federal Republic itself and not to uh, one faction or party. Uh, He didn't think that you should vote for party line. I mean, we see this all the time in the United States. Once the party is in power, they they tend to embrace all of the unconstitutional legal things that they were opposed to when they were out of power. And uh, I'm going to talk about that in a second, and I already have uh, uh, briefly in what John C. Calhoun had to say about that. But that's essentially what we got. Uh, So we had a situation developing where faction became more important than policies or principles. And because of that, uh, you started developing political parties. Now, we didn't really get political parties until Martin Van Buren helped create the Democrat Party, moving into the 1820s and 1830s, where you get uh, party canvassing and conventions and all of these things that we know and hate today as far as political parties. And they started becoming very large umbrella parties. So essentially the first political party was the Democrat Party. Uh, and that party is this, it's essentially the same Democrat Party that's there today. I mean, we can look at policies that are, that are different and principles that are different. Uh, but generally, that, that party was formed uh, in the aftermath of the 1824 election. Because even up to that point, uh, you didn't really have political parties. Uh, you had factions. And you had fairly chaotic voting at times. Uh, even in your districts, uh, when you looked at you know, voting for... Uh, people to go serve in Congress or at your state and local level. You could have large numbers of candidates and you would have, again, single-member district plurality voting where someone didn't have to get a majority. All they had to do is get a plurality to win. Now, in the Senate, we had the state legislature still selecting these senators. So, in that particular case, party didn't matter at all. Uh, it, I mean, of course, you know, the dominant faction in the state legislature then would select the person that they wanted to represent the state. And so the voting for your state legislator was very, very important because that person would not only represent you at the state level, they would also essentially then be in control of who would represent the state at the, at the federal level or for the general government. So uh, this is why people have talked about for years repealing the 17th Amendment because the 17th Amendment essentially created a single-member district plurality voting system for the states and it creates a much more national climate for these senators. I mean, people dump money in from all over the United States for your local or, you know, your state senator election, right? So, uh, you know, you got somebody running, well, we don't want that guy, so I'm going to send money from Massachusetts into Alabama to make sure that the ex-candidate doesn't get elected. Or back uh, years ago, when uh, you had that uh, very famous uh, election for uh, Senator Brown in Massachusetts. People were dumping money in from all over the United States to make sure that uh, Scott Brown was elected in Massachusetts because theoretically Scott Brown was going to stop Obamacare. And of course, we saw how that worked out. But still, that became a national election. And so we don't really have the states in control of the Senate anymore. And that's that's a problem. I and mean, that was the one federal part of the entire or of the entire Constitution, that the states would have a block on the entire system through the Senate, and they just don't have it anymore. So uh, we had these single-member district situations at the state. And the other thing that's interesting about that, you know, they didn't have uh, secret ballots for much of American history. You would go up 
uh, to vote. You would show up on election day. They would have it at you know, the courthouse. And so you would travel into the courthouse and they would have, it was a wild festival. They would have booths set up. I mean, there was no, you go to your voting place today and no campaigning 300 feet from the polling place. And yeah, you show up to your polling place and there's people out there with tents and they're handing out stickers and waving at you. But you couldn't, you couldn't, you can't go inside to, uh, to try to influence people. But you would show up at these voting places and it was the same thing. And if, now down here in the South, I don't know uh, how it is. Uh, you know, say in, in Michigan or uh, in, in Oregon or uh, Massachusetts or Connecticut. But down in the South, you know, you have people, uh, you know, handing out stickers. They might have some food or drinks or something. Uh, and it was the same way uh, in, in the United States or in the early federal period. Uh, but uh, they would have as much grog as you wanted. Uh, they would have barbecue pits going. And so you'd come out and you'd eat barbecue and drink beer or whiskey or whatever they had. And uh, they would they would get you pretty sauced up. And then you would have to go up and cast your vote to the public. You would publicly proclaim who you're voting for. So there's no secret ballot. You showed up and said, I vote for candidate X because he gave me the best barbecue today. Uh, yeah, and everybody would cheer. And, uh, of course, fights could break out at these things. Uh, you know, into the 1860s when elections became much more contentious, for example, in the North, uh, you would show up and you would vote. And there was no secret ballot. and You could be beaten up for voting for a Democrat uh, during the war, for example. So, Or you could be pulled aside and said, look, I see you're voting for a Democrat there, uh, but uh, you sure you want to do that? How about you take this oath of allegiance? So all of that. Uh, and that, that non-secret ballot created a situation where you had to be pretty firm in your, in your political beliefs uh, to go cast your vote. But again, because of the system, because of that single-member district plurality system, you would have uh, a winner-take-all system. You would have essentially two factions develop, Democrats and Republicans. Now, John C. Calhoun warned about this in his disquisition on government, and he said, look, Written constitutions are great, but the problem is when you have that situation, you're going to have two factions fighting over the spoils. Again, one faction is going to be uh, against uh, against abusing the Constitution, against uh, you know government abuse while they're out of power. But once they get in power, they're going to reverse course and they're going to advocate everything they were against the entire time leading up to the situation where they were uh, out of power or before they, they gained power, I should say. So, and he was entirely correct about this. This is why uh, written constitutions oftentimes aren't worth the paper they're written on, because they don't prevent abuse of power unless you have people who are willing to fight for that in the government. And not only that, people who are willing to take up lawsuits. And that costs money and time. So you And, of course, you have to have a judge that's sympathetic to it. So Calhoun's position was we need something else to, to keep the government in line. And, of course, he came up with this very famous or infamous, depending on what you think about it, concurrent majority system. So we've had this winner-take-all system, and that has produced, that originally produced uh, the factions, the anti-federalists, and then later the Democratic Republicans and the Federalists. And then, of course, we had the Democrats... Uh, and, um, but, you know, we, we had the Republicans before that, which was a faction, but it, everyone called themselves a Republican 
after the War of 1812 because the, the Federalists had so discredited themselves during the war in opposition to the war and, and bordering on treason in New England uh, and supporting the British uh, that nobody wanted to say they were a Federalist. So everyone was Republican. But even in that, you had factions. You had, you had the National Republicans, people like Henry Clay and John Quincy Adams, and then you had the Democratic Republicans faction, people like, uh, you know, eventually uh, Andrew Jackson, for example. And that later became the Democrats. So after the Democrats, uh, Martin Van Buren creates this modern Democratic Party. The other faction eventually gets, gets the idea, gets the hint, okay, we need to create some type of party. And they come up with the Whigs. Now, the Whig Party was not a very strong party until you get to about the election of 1840 and William Henry Harrison. In fact, you could make a case that 1840 was the first modern election in American history because both sides had convention processes and they had campaign slogans and buttons and all the other things that we recognize for political parties today. And they were canvassing and doing all those kind of things. And so 1840 was that first modern election. So you had the Democrats and the Whigs. Now, you did have some third parties developing in this particular period of time, particularly for uh, president. Uh, you had the Free Soilers, you had the anti-Masonic parties, uh, and uh, you had other little factions like that that would pop up, and it would be essentially maybe a single-issue party. You know, the Free Soil Party is often seen as simply a party that was interested in stopping the extension of slavery, but they very much had a Hamiltonian type of economic system underlying the the political party as well so that they weren't completely uh, a single issue party though anyone who was going to vote for the free soilers was interested in stopping the expansion of slavery uh, into the territories which is why they were called the free soil party uh, and then uh, you know so you had the, the know nothings the know nothing faction pop up in the 1850s or the american party uh, and then, of course, before that, in the 1830s, you had the Nullification Party. In South Carolina, you had the Anti-Jackson Party, essentially, the precursor to the—I mean, they, they were using the term Whig uh, as opposed to the Tories, who they called you know, the Jacksonians. They were the Tories. So you had these very small little, little factions. Uh, and then, of course, 1860 rolls around. You have four parties— Vying for the presidency in 1860, you had the Republicans, the, the Northern Democrats, the Southern Democrats, and the Constitutional Union Party, uh, which nominated John Bell to be their uh, presidential candidate. So you had these, the, and of course Lincoln wins because he gets a majority in the Electoral College, even though he only got 39% of the popular vote. But he had a majority in the Electoral College, which is all you need. The popular vote doesn't matter. In that particular system, you have to have the majority of the Electoral College. So uh, you know, it, it's hard to have more than two parties because you run into a situation where somebody can get under 40% of the popular vote and still win the election should they win in the Electoral College. Uh, so uh, moving uh, past that, you know, and, and the, the question was, you know, I think they even mentioned this in 1864, there was uh, the, Lincoln wasn't necessarily a Republican. He was in this kind of this hybrid ticket because they had uh, you know, Andrew Johnson as the vice presidential candidate. And Johnson was a Democrat. So this was, this was a, uh, they called it the National Union Party, things like that. Uh, they weren't necessarily Republicans. They were interested in prosecuting the war. And the Democrats, you know, had nominated uh, uh, McClellan as their candidate. And of course, uh, part of the Part of the underlying, uh, you know, motivation there was that McClellan was going to pull the North out of the conflict, sue for peace, 
there was going to be an end to the war. And so um, you had this very strange situation developing in, in the United States at that time uh, for that, that particular campaign. Uh, but once the war is over, you go back to having Republicans and Democrats again uh, as the two major parties. The Republican Party uh, came into existence in 1854, and uh, it's the same Republican Party today uh, in, in many different ways. Uh, and so, not, not in every way, but in many different ways. Uh, and then so, uh, moving forward from that, you did have some, some threats to the two-party system uh, in the uh, 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, in the 19th century, you had the populists, for example, uh, which, which uh, ran candidates, William Jennings Bryan and James B. Weaver. And uh, for, for president, uh, you did have some, some success at the uh, state and local level with some of these minor parties. Uh, so there was, uh, there was an opportunity for the populists. And then, of course, when you get into the early 20th century and you look at the uh, election of 1912, you had the Socialist Party with Eugene Debs actually get, get quite a lot of votes. Uh, you had the Progressive Bull Moose Party of Teddy Roosevelt. In that 1912 election, you had a very much like the 1860 election. Uh, you had uh, a split of the vote four ways. You had the Republicans, the Democrats, the Progressives, and the Socialists. Uh, the Socialists, not, as, not a very large faction, but of course uh, Taft and Roosevelt splitting the votes for the Republicans. And Woodrow Wilson becomes president in 1912. So you did have this very short-lived progressive party. Uh, you had a very short-lived pop, uh, populist party. In 1896, the populists were essentially absorbed by the Democrats when they nominate, both nominated William Jennings Bryan for, for president. Uh, and then moving forward from that, you still had, uh, you know, factions at times. You still had, um, uh, for example, um, you still had libertarian. You had the Libertarian Party make an impact. Uh, you know, electoral college vote here or there. Uh, but essentially, what happened after that 1912 election? I think the 1912 election was pretty instructive for people. Uh, they stopped being interested in 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 more than two parties because they saw what happened. Uh, it, it was always thought. Now, of course, in in late. Uh, 20th century, you had Ross Perot and the Reform Party, and what that did as well. And people would, again, this is often brought up. Well, yeah, if we if we get a third party, it's going to be just like 1992, and we're going to get another Bill Clinton because uh, it was thought that Ross Perot was pulling votes away from George H. W. Bush, and uh, that led to Bush's defeat. Now, of course, what's the difference between George W. Bush and Bill Clinton? Nothing, uh, but. Uh, it was thought, well, I mean, we got Clinton. We could have had Bush. Well, this is the same George H.W. Bush that told Congress he didn't need to uh, notify them uh, before he sent troops into com uh, combat. Uh, it was just a, a courtesy call, for example. Congress didn't need to be consulted at all over this. I mean, this was the president's authority. Uh, and we saw massive expansion in the general government during the Bush years, which is why in my nine presidents who screwed up America, I dedicated a whole chapter to the last four administrations. You've had, you know, Obama, uh, Bush, George W. Bush, uh, Bill Clinton, and George H.W. Bush. There's really no difference. And, of course, I could have dragged that back, um, you know, before that. But um, and the chapter is labeled Barack Obama, but uh, all four of those presidents is basically one administration in, in one way or the other. Uh, when it comes to the unconstitutional expansion of executive power. But uh, you did have the Reform Party. But I think there was a general idea that having more than one party was dangerous, particularly for a, a group that was, uh, was trying to gain the executive branch. 
it was dangerous to have more than one because that would produce a situation where you get a, a you know somebody from the other party getting to office without 50% of the vote. You know, Clinton never got 50% of the vote. Uh, it's been proven that Ross Perot didn't pull votes only away from George H.W. Bush, but also from Bill Clinton as well. But Clinton didn't get 50% of the vote. So, uh, you know, we have these minority presidents. Um, never got 50, Clinton never got 50% of the vote, neither 1996 or 1992. Uh, so, you know, he was, in terms of numbers, a minority president. That's what makes it so funny when Hillary Clinton was running around saying, well, we, we have a minority president. Yeah, your husband was a minority president. Uh, he never got 50% of the vote. Um, he won the Electoral College, which is all that matters. So, uh, I mean, that's happened several times in American history. That's not something new or unique to the last election in 2016. So have we had more than one political party at times? Certainly. And we've had, we've had major factions and then major parties, but there have been times where there's been these little third parties or even major uh, opposition parties that develop uh, but the people will tell you that, oh, well, that's dangerous because uh, in that particular situation, you're going to get somebody you don't want in office rather than somebody you do want in office. Um, I think when I when I look at that, particularly at the, you know the congressional level or at your state and local level, I mean, if you, if you're looking there, parties are very much irrelevant at the state and local level. I, I wish they wouldn't even have, you know, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat at your state and local level. It should come down to principles there and not party. But we, we've gotten so interested in this R and D nonsense that somehow the R's are different from the D's and somehow the R's are going to do things differently than the D's that we, uh, or the D's are going to do things differently than the R's that we, we get tied up in that. All of them, all they want to do is expand government power. I mean, there, there's, there, there's, and, and that's, that's fine for most of the American population because, again, as Calhoun said, once you're in power, you want the levers. You want to use the reins of government. You want to punish the other side for all the terrible things they did to you when they were in power. And I think that's where we get into a very dangerous situation with a two-party system, and you need to have some other kind type of check. The Tenth Amendment was intended to be that check for the general government. Of course, it didn't have any teeth, which is why Calhoun was coming up with his concurrent majority. So... Uh, and we, you know, you looked at uh, various amendment proposals to somehow uh, have, um, you know, mechanisms in place, you know, uh, uh, some at a convention of the states to create some type of mechanism that can arrest the power of the general government when it's unconstitutional. I mean, we've looked at all kinds of we're, people have looked at all these things. My uh, political science professors are all lefties, but they love parliamentarian systems because you could have, uh, you know, you could have uh, governments that had to have. Um, a functioning government through compromise with various factions. You could have a, uh, a socialist faction, for example. You could have a far-right faction. You could have a libertarian faction. And these you would have to have uh, a government developed that would represent the interests of all these factions. So they always tended to like parliamentarian systems better. And I, I tend to agree with them in that particular way. You would have a much more robust uh, political discourse in that way. But you'd have to... Uh, essentially change um, the way that we, we elect people for the, the Congress to have that work. And so there would be, have to be some structural changes to the United States Constitution. You could have a parliamentarian system at your, uh, at your state level if you wanted to. Um, there's nothing against that as long as it's a Republican form of government, which it would be. Uh, you could have that type of system there. So uh, you know, these things could happen, but it's going to take an educated public, and most Americans just don't really care that much about it, 
So to make a long story short, we're probably not going to see any changes. We're going to keep the two-party system, and we're going to continue down the path of uh, you know oppressive, uh, unconstitutional government unless there is some type of mechanism put in place to stop that, and that would have to be done through a constitutional amendment. All right, I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, I hope I didn't get into, into the weeds too much, just giving you kind of a rundown. It's a political science slash history talk, but I'll see you next time on The Brian Report.